The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 3-14. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we, who had already put our hope in Christ, might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of our possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Jenny. On your way in, hopefully you're given one of these bookmarks. It says Ephesians. If you flip around to the back side, it's got dates and verses. So we're going to encourage you to memorize uh, a verse with us each week as we go through this study on Ephesians. Most of the weeks are one verse, a couple of two. I think there's one with three because it's uh, sort of a complete thought. But if you do this, if you memorize these verses as we go through this study, by the end of May, you'll have memorized almost 20% of the book of Ephesians. So it's pretty simple to do it like that. I want to encourage you to participate in that with us. Store God's word in your heart. I think it'll be encouragement to do. We'll read them together on Sundays. We'll discuss them in your community groups as well. So if you don't have one of these bookmarks, just pick it up on the way out. Put that in your Bible. And as you read and pray, uh, memorize those verses as well. When I was a kid, I would see these TV commercials for something called the Publisher's Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. As a kid, I had no idea what that was. Frankly, as an adult, I still have no idea what that was. But I do remember the commercials. There was Ed McMahon, so he was a TV personality, and he would, he would show up uh, as a surprise at someone's house, and he and his whole crew would go to the front door, and they would ring the doorbell, and when the person opened the doorbell, they'd yell, congratulations, they'd throw confetti, they'd release balloons, and they'd give them this huge oversized check with like millions of dollars for them. Like, I just remember as a kid, I, again, no idea what it is, how you do it, but I was like, that would be awesome, just waiting for my doorbell to ring and Ed McMahon and his big check to be there. Because it's in this moment, in this one moment, you know, so much of your future has changed, right? You have your financial future, all of these things just happen in, the, in this one moment when the doorbell rings. I thought about that sweepstakes this week because I was studying the beginning of Ephesians Because as you open this letter that's written from God to us through the Apostle Paul, it's a bit like opening your front door to see the prize patrol waiting there for you. 
We're told in the beginning of this letter that Christians have won the spiritual sweepstakes. That in one moment, all of our needs have been met, our future secure, our lives have been transformed. This letter begins, like most, with a customary greeting. But after that greeting, the Apostle Paul announces to us that we have won the biggest and best prize ever awarded in the universe. Look at what he says in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that God gives belongs to us. I mean, do you understand how big the check has to be to to have every spiritual blessing listed on it? And then he follows this statement by telling us some of those gifts. Listen, he doesn't tell us most of those gifts. He picks out just a few of those gifts. They're representative of all of these blessings that come to us through Jesus Christ. That's the overarching point of these first verses, is that through Christ, all of God's blessings come to his people. Now, these blessings, notice, are described as spiritual blessings in the heavens, which means two things. First, there are blessings that we could never hope to discover on our own. Like we can't build a rocket ship, get in the rocket ship, and fly our way to heaven and discover the the blessings there and bring them down for ourselves. They, They have to be given to us from heaven. Someone there has to deliver them. The second thing it means is that these blessings, because they're spiritual in nature, outlast death. So when... When our physical bodies finally wear out, which they will, the older you get, the more you know this, they're wearing out, these blessings don't wear out. So this is not a promise that God's going to make you healthy. It's not a promise that God's going to make you rich. This is a promise of blessings that are far bigger and more transformative and longer lasting than anything you see around you. I know we're often tempted to treasure physical blessings. In fact, often, if we're being honest, if we were given a choice between spiritual blessings and physical blessings, we'd have a hard time saying no to the physical blessings. But what good are those physical blessings when you're on your deathbed? I mean, when you're gasping for your last breath, does it really matter how big your salary was? Or how nice your house was? Or how young you looked? Or how high you rose in your your company's org chart. See, God doesn't give us inferior gifts. He gives us superior gifts. And so he gives us these blessings that are not damaged by disease or destroyed by death. And listen, these are blessings that we can trust. We can trust what we're told here. Because we're told at the very beginning of this letter that the words that we're going to read this morning, the words we're going to study over the next number of months, are the very words of God. As the Apostle Paul opens in in verse 1, he says that he is sent as a messenger of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, he didn't make this stuff up. This is God's word to God's people. So we can trust it. And then he tells us in verse 2 that this is actually a means of grace to us. That we receive God's grace through these words. These words are transformative. So when you feel down because everything you do seems to fail, when you feel lost because you're just not sure what to do next, when you feel dissatisfied because even your victories aren't as meaningful as you hoped they would be, 
then remember the words we study this morning, that the blessings from God to his people through Jesus Christ are the most true and unchanging reality of your life. So having finished his greeting in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, he writes a single sentence. I'm quite certain his grammar instructor as a kid was not the same as mine. Because if I had written a sentence that had 202 words and 32 prepositional phrases, I would have failed. She said, no, it's not happening. Something would have, commas would have been in the wrong places. So he has this incredibly complex sentence he writes. Verses 3 through 14, just one sentence. But I would also say it's very simple at its core. He writes this one sentence filled with words and prepositional phrases so that we will be overwhelmed with the kindness of our Father. We're going to take two weeks to study this sentence. This morning, we're going to look at the first three of five blessings. Next week, we'll finish looking at the blessings as well as look at how they come to us through Christ and why for God's glory. So this morning, three of the five blessings listed here. Here's the first spiritual blessing. It's that God chose us. Look at verse four. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. So God chose us long before we ever chose him. It all begins with God. This word chose is often translated elected because that sounds similar to the Greek word that it comes from. It's often taught as the doctrine of election. It's a big topic, a topic that raises a lot of questions. It's a, it's a topic that keeps a lot of seminary professors and authors employed. So maybe, maybe when you hear this, what your mind does is it sprints to all the objections or all the, all the, 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 the confusing details. Maybe you start thinking about, about human choice or personal responsibility. Maybe you start thinking, well, how does evangelism work? Or what about prayer or the problem of evil and all of these things? And here's what I would urge you to do. Stop running to what you perceive are all the challenges of this truth and just look at what God says right here. Here's what God says. Christian, I chose you. The God of the universe says this. I chose you. I chose you. I mean, can you believe that? That's what God says. I chose you. I chose you. Every blessing begins with God because this world and everything in this world is about God. It's not about us. And so the fact that all of God's saving activity begins with God's choice, begins with God's activity, shouldn't surprise us. Everything has its origins in God. God acts first. And the fact that God, for his own reasons, chooses people is detailed throughout the Bible. It's done without apology. Here's what the Bible teaches us. God acts like God. God acts like God. Like, we don't like that a lot of times. We do our best often to supplant him. But God acts like God. We try to act like God, but we're not like God. God acts like God. And so God, because he's God and because we aren't, he makes whatever choices he desires. Just think about the story we find in the Bible. God chose Abraham out of a land of pagans. God chose this one man and he brought him out of this land and he said to him, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and like the sand in the sea. Why? Because God chose him. God chose Aaron. 
He said, you're going to be the high priest of all the people of Israel. He says, Aaron, you're going to be the high priest, and it's your descendants after you that will follow you in the priestly line. They're the only ones who get to serve in that particular role. I mean, God makes this really clear when he chooses David to be king. Because David's father is told, one of your sons is going to be king. And so he lines up all of his sons, but he leaves the baby out in the field. I know you youngest born, this is probably the story you most identify with, right? All the big strapping brothers are lined up and David's like, well, you can handle the sheep. It's clearly not you. The one thing we know in this whole situation, David's father says is, it ain't you. That's the only thing I know. And yet God looks at each one and it says like, wow, he's big and strapping. Wow, he's impressive. Wow, he's qualified. He says, it's none of them. I want David. And then God chooses Israel. Don talked about this a couple weeks ago. When God describes, he says, you know what you were like, Israel? You were like a baby that had been born and had been thrown into a field and left to die. In other words, you were helpless and you were little and you were ugly and you were, you were there's nothing you could do. There's no reason in you for my choice of you, but I chose you. See, God is God, and his choices always come first. God is proactive, not reactive. God has a plan that he has put in place, and he's bringing it to pass. God is not in heaven waiting for us to act so he can figure out what to do. But why did God choose us? Why did God choose you? See, God is not like the popular kid at recess who picks all the best players for the dodgeball team. We're told in verse 4, this is important, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose you because of what you've done or because of what you would do. He chose you freely and without constraints. God didn't consult a poll. He didn't rely on expert predictions. He didn't bow to external pressure. He didn't listen to effective persuasion. God chose those whom he chose as a free act of his grace under no compulsion but his own will. Which means, listen, God didn't choose you because you were special or because you were sinless. In fact, God chose you, we're told in verse four, so that he could make you holy and blameless before him. God chose you before you were ever born, knowing full well how wicked and sinful you would be, and he determined that he would do whatever was necessary to remove your shame and set you apart as his unique and special possession. See, God chose you in all of your brokenness so that he could make you beautiful. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. God doesn't choose those who look good and clean up well. God doesn't look at your potential and see something he needs. God chooses you because he is kind and loving and he commits himself to making you fruitful. Because he is God, God doesn't have to select the best field in order to get the best crops for the best harvest. What God does is he selects whatever field he wants and he makes it the best field with the best crops and the best harvest. And he does it all so that we see that he is God, we are not, and he is worthy of all of our praise. Now, I want you to think about this, brothers and sisters, that if God chose you before the foundation of the world to be distinct, to be set apart for him, in fact, he calls all Christians in verse 1 saints. Saint is not some sort of level of spirituality we achieve. Every Christian is a saint. They've been set apart by God for God. And so if this is true, then God's will for you right now 
Think about this. If God chose you before the foundation of the world to be distinct and set apart, then God's will for you at this very moment is to live a distinct life. God's plan for you is to be different than those around you. You're not supposed to look like everyone in your school. You're not supposed to talk like everyone in the job site. You're not supposed to party like everyone in your dorm. You're not supposed to spend like everyone in your neighborhood. Like God chose you to be holy, to be a priest in his kingdom who lives a life that testifies to his grace. Now, I wonder if someone reading this would have liked to have a conversation with the Apostle Paul and said, why did you start your letter this way? Did you not know how controversial this would be? Why does he start here? Of all places, why here? I think... The reason he begins with God's sovereign election is because it is the only thing that explains his own experience. Why would the leading opponent of Christianity become the leading Christian voice? How how could the guy who hunted down and killed Christians, literally killed Christians, How could he end up dying in the hand of Caesar because he can't stop talking about Jesus Christ? How does that happen? God chose him. That's the only possible explanation. One pastor, I think, gave an important reminder about this topic. He said the biblical writers show no embarrassment or shame over the fact that God is God. And we are not. He elects and we do not. He chooses and therefore we choose. This is because the scripture concentrates on how wonderful these purposes of God are. and shows how consistent they are with his character. But men tend to treat the subject as though we have the right to sit in judgment on those purposes. But how can we judge what we cannot comprehend? So listen, these truths are written for our encouragement, not for our embarrassment or confusion. I want you to think for a moment about the first Christians who received this letter. So this was written to Christians in a, in a large metropolitan city named Ephesus, called Ephesus. That city was likely 250,000 people when this was written. So large, affluent. And we know from the book of Acts that, that one of their major sources of revenue was, was making idols. So this very religious, very idolatrous place. In fact, we're told that there were so many Christians, so many people were becoming Christians there, that there was a riot in the city because all of the idol workers, all this, this whole industry is seeing their profit go down because Christians aren't buying these idols. So this is the context in which this is written. Let's think about idolatry for just a moment. Idolatry is very transactional. Here's what I mean. You have this stone figure that's supposed to represent a God. So you're a farmer. And what you really need is rain. Right? There's, there's been a drought. Your crops aren't going to make it unless there's rain. So you go to this God who's supposed to represent the weather. You think this, this God controls the weather. This, this idol is an image that's, that it's, he's the one, this God, he's controlling the weather. So I'm going to go and make a transaction. I'm going to bring something of value to me. I'm going to lay it before this idol. And I, my hope is that he'll respond happily to this and he'll, he'll send rain. Now, here's the problem. He's a, it's a stone, right? So you don't actually know if he's received it. You just watch your circumstances and you hope. 
Okay, or maybe Ephesus, like there's a lot of fertility. The goddess of fertility, this was very common in Ephesus. So you want to have children, like God hasn't given you and your wife children, so you go to the fertility goddess and you offer something valuable, like something, like the most important thing you have. You're like, I'll give it to you, just give us children. And then, again, it just sits there, so you keep waiting and so your whole thing is, are they happy with me? Are they angry with me? Well, I gave the, the, the God of the weather this, but I, I didn't end up getting rain. Maybe he's angry with me. Maybe I did something to offend him. What could I have possibly have done? So you're constantly racking your brain. You're wondering. You're hoping, like, like well, what if I try this? It's this transaction. You do something for the idol. and in, in turn, you hope the idol will do something for you. And so your life is constant fear of the idol's displeasure. And here comes this letter, the word of God to you, and it says, listen, the true God is not like those idols. The true God is not unstable, he's not erratic, he's not silent. And so those first Christians living this culture, this is what they needed to hear, and this is what Ephesians is saying. He's saying, God does not relate to you Christians based upon your choices but based upon his choice. So brothers and sisters, we're told about election so that we'll find encouragement when we feel like we've messed up so badly that there's no way God can love us. When our faults and our failures convince us that that God would have nothing to do with us, we're reminded he chose us. He chose to love us long before we were born. And his love is not based upon us being holy and blameless. His love makes us holy and blameless. And God chose us. Here's a second spiritual blessing. God adopted us. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So before you and I were born, God not only chose us, but he made a decision about our future. Okay, so the word predestined is two parts. Pre meaning before, destined meaning decided or determined. So here's what it's saying. Before you were born, God determined your destiny. And what is that destiny? Here he says, you will be adopted as sons. He says, sons, not children here, not daughters, because in that culture, right, the right of inheritance comes to sons. And so he's basically saying, every single one of you who's a Christian, God chose before you were born to adopt you as one of his sons with all of the rights of inheritance that belong to sons. Everything that the Father has now belongs to you. Notice why he does it, verse 5. God adopts us because it's his will to adopt us. He makes us his children because it pleases him to do so. In fact, the words at the end of verse 4, in love, should actually be part of verse 5 because they modify this phrase, predestined to be adopted. Love is the motivating factor for God's choice to adopt us. God is so filled with love, his very essence is love, that he overflows in love and this love spreads to The children he's adopted, why? Because it makes him happy to do it. I think it's possible that when someone uses the terms like election 
or predestination, this, the picture we get in our mind is, is a cranky old chess player in Central Park. Right? He's sitting there at the table, and what he's doing is he's just pushing pawns around the board, and he's sacrificing them as if they don't matter. I mean, can you not see how God is nothing like that grumpy chess player? God is not callous toward us. An unending reservoir of love sits at the very center of God's being and bubbles over and moves him to choose and predestine us to become his children, to share in his creation and enjoy his presence forever and ever and ever without end. I mean, Christian, God chose to be your father. He chose to bring you into his family. He chose to bring you under his care. He chose to give you a future. He chose to give access to him all because it pleased him to do so. God is the father we all long for. Whether you had a great dad, a terrible dad, an indifferent dad, an apathetic dad, absent dad, the dad we all need is God. The best human fathers, they're just a, a, a mere shadow of the kind of father God is. And the worst human fathers dishonor the name father. God has blessed us with himself by adopting us as his children. And he made this choice before you existed and in spite of all the times that you would disobey and dishonor him. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, for everything that Christ taught... Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old. Everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. I love this. Father is the Christian name for God. God chooses to be our father. Now listen, I want you to see why, one reason why this is so important that we get this. Because understanding that we've been adopted by God because he loves us and it pleases him to do it. This keeps us from legalism. Now, legalism, let me just quickly define what that is. It's just meaning that when you feel like it's up to you to earn or keep God's favor. That God's favor is based upon what you do. So the choices you make, the decisions, all of that determines how God feels about you. That's legalism. And it's exhausting. Right? It's this way, like idolatry, it's this way of constantly doing spiritual math. Am I doing the good stuff? Am I doing the bad stuff? Have I outweighed my good with my bad? Like, how does he feel? About What's he really think? Like, this is the constant way. So all of our religious activity then can be fueled by, by legalism. Like, oh man, if, I, if I'm not there, like, oh, maybe that'll be a demerit. Like, maybe I'll lose some, some, some points in, in God's grading system. And becomes this, just this fearful, exhausting way to live. But if God determined to adopt us for himself because of his love before we've ever done one good or bad thing that gives us confidence that he's going to love us even when we mess up. And so this gives us freedom to enjoy God instead of living in fear of his disapproval. So if, if you struggle, I think this is a common struggle. So if you struggle with worry about how God feels about you, if, you, if you're always going like, man, I feel like God's angry with me all the time. I feel like, you know, I had a bad day today. Maybe I jeopardized God's love. 
Like, remember this truth. Remind yourself of this truth that God predestined you for adoption for himself because it pleased him to do so. It's our adoption that gives us confidence. We have an inheritance that never fades or fails. Jump down to verse 11. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might, be, might bring praise to his glory. Now, let's think about inheritance for a little bit. When, when we think about getting an inheritance, so beyond, I'm not the only one who's thought about an inheritance, right? We always want it to come from a long-lost uncle. Why is that? Because the only way you get an inheritance is if someone dies. So like if you're hanging out with your parents all the time and you're talking a lot about how excited you are about your inheritance, right, that might harm your relationship. Because normally, right, to inherit means you've got to lose something in order to gain something. I've got to lose this loved one in order to gain the inheritance. And here's what's just remarkable about this inheritance we get from God. God doesn't have to die to share everything with us. God invites us. He's like, listen, you're going to enjoy everything I've created alongside of me. And everything God created is everything that exists. You can do it forever and ever. That's your inheritance. One author wrote, said it this way, described it this way. He said, God intends to flood the whole cosmos, heaven and earth together with his presence and grace. And when that happens, the new world that results in which Jesus himself will be the central figure is to be the inheritance of which Jesus' people are longing. Like the inheritance we get is God and everything that belongs to him. Like that's what he's promising us. So God chose us, he adopted us. Here's the third spiritual blessing. God redeemed us. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. So when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, God brought them out of slavery, but there was a cost. So on the night before they left the land, they had to sacrifice a spotless lamb, right? Then they had to go out and they had to wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house so that judgment would pass over them. So they could only leave slavery in Egypt for the promised land if the blood of the lamb had redeemed them from slavery. Now this is just one of many pictures in the Old Testament of what Jesus would do. The ultimate slavery is not slavery to a human, it's slavery to sin and death. Because you and I have trespassed God's law. We've gone where God told us not to go. We've done what God told us to avoid. We belong to sin and death. They are our masters. And so we have no ability to escape their clutches. So we shouldn't talk about having a bleak future. We should talk about having a future without any hope. None at all. But God, because of his great love and grace, God chose to purchase us out of slavery at great cost to himself. Listen, the death of a lamb is not valuable enough to forgive our sins, to appease the demands of justice. Something of infinite value was required to pay the debt we owe for our rebellion against an infinitely good God. So God's plan to forgive our sin and rescue us from slavery was centered on the coming of his son, Jesus. Though God himself, Jesus became a man, lived a life of perfect obedience to God, then died in the place of sinners, his sacrificial offering, his blood has the power to pay our debt, redeem us from slavery, and forgive every sin we've ever committed 
or will ever commit. All of that is summed up by the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 when he writes, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. You can't buy your way to forgiveness, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So the cost of redemption is the blood of Jesus. But here's the question I want you to consider. To whom is the price of redemption paid? Like who collects it? Is the death of Jesus given to the devil so we can be free? No. It's paid to God. So God, who is the judge of all things, requires payment, and then God is the one who pays the price. This this is because we're told in the book of Romans that God is both just and he is the justifier. He is... He requires payment because we violate his laws. And then through the death of Jesus, he pays the price for us. And listen, what this means for us is twofold. Listen. First, it means that we add nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. Like we don't even offer like pocket change to pay the tax for redemption. Like We offer nothing. God does it all. Second, it means that no one can alter the conditions of our release once God has accepted the deal. If God redeems us, if God forgives us, then no one has the right to butt in and tell us we're not forgiven. Though Satan tells us, hey, there's no way God could forgive you. You you don't really belong to him or you wouldn't do that. There's no way that God can forgive you. The cross of Jesus tells us a different story. It tells us the truth about our standing before God. Through the cross, God justifies us forever and the issue is settled. When Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it. It's done. Price is paid. You'll never open your mailbox and find a bill for your redemption. Of course, the need for redemption says a lot about us, doesn't it? Two of the most common words in the English language are, I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. Liar. Right? We say it all the time. I'm fine. The truth is, not, is that we're not fine. Apart from Christ, we're as far from fine as it's possible to be. We are hopelessly lost. We're enslaved to our sinful desires. There's nothing fine about us. But God loves us too much to leave us not fine. I wonder, friend, have your sins ever been forgiven by the death of Jesus in your place? Have you asked God to apply the blood of Jesus to your life? Have you asked God to cancel your debt These wonderful promises, these blessings we're looking at this morning, we'll look at more next week, they're only true for the one who's turned in faith to God for redemption and forgiveness. The reason God chose to redeem us is because of his grace. This is remarkable to me that we don't have language to describe God's grace. You'll see even the Apostle Paul, under the pen of inspiration, 
God speaking through him, struggles to find vocabulary and terminology that will help us understand God's grace. The best he can do is use financial terms. And we know how weak those are, but that's the best he can do. Notice he says, God has richly blessed us. He wants us to picture these vast vaults of grace that contain more grace than all of us combined could ever need. And notice in verse 7, God does not simply give us grace out of his accounts. He gives it according to the riches of his grace. That's a big difference. Those, those words, small words make a big difference. Here's what I mean. If, if Bill Gates were to give you money out of his account, he could give you $2 or he could give you $2 billion. Giving money out of his account says nothing about whether he's stingy or whether he's generous. But if he were to give you money according to what's in his account, according to means in proportion to or corresponding to. So if Bill Gates gives you money according to what's in his account, I can guarantee you it ain't going to be $2. See, God isn't there intently watching the grace meter and just being just ready to cut you off. <laughs> used too much today. In fact, the amount of grace God gives you is exactly the amount you need at exactly the moment you need it. Verse 8 tells us he pours it out on us with, with all wisdom and understanding. Do you know God is never surprised when you need more grace? Like your failures don't shock him. He understands better than you do how dependent you are on his grace and he gives it to you as you need it. You will never discover your need for grace before God does. When, whenever you reach the conclusion that you need grace, you find God standing there with it wrapped up and ready to go. And listen, the grace that brings forgiveness and redemption is not potential. We're not this morning talking about hypothetical possibilities. I like sports. We're the end of football season. If you listen to sports radio, you, you watch ESPN, you hear everyone talking about hypothetical possibilities. If this team beats this team, and if this happens, and this happens, and, this, and it's all about probabilities. Maybe this will take place. Maybe this will happen. God pouring out his grace on his children is not hypothetical. It's already taken place. This word poured out is a completed action. Here's what God is assuring you. I have already poured out exactly how much grace you'll need for the rest of your days. Like You will never have a day where you need grace that I haven't already poured it out for you. See, our issue as God's children is not that we will run out of his grace. Our issue is that we will fail to depend upon it. We'll ignore it We'll substitute our effort for his grace. Listen, whenever our sin abounds, we know God's grace abounds even more. We sent out an email a week or two ago to our members asking some questions about spiritual health. And the most common response we received was that in 2023, there was an increase in feelings of anxiety. One of the weapons that God gives us through Scripture to fight feelings like anxiety is worship. I think the logic of that is pretty clear, right? The more that we fix our eyes on God in worship, so the more that we see his power, 
We see his glory, we see his grace, we see his strength. The more our confidence in him grows and our anxiety diminishes. Notice this long sentence in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 begins with worship. The Apostle Paul here is recounting all of God's blessings in order to bless God. I mean, God has an infinite number of ways to bless us. We looked at three this morning. We'll look at a a couple more next week. But because we're so needy, like God can bless us in so many ways. Do you realize we can only bless God in one way? Because God doesn't need anything from us. But there's one way that we get to bless God. We bless him when we believe him and enjoy what he gives us. That's it. That's our way. You see this deeply theological sentence it's an expression of praise to God for all of his blessings. We get, bless God by enjoying the blessings he gives us. And the more we bless God, the more we focus on what he has done, the fuller our hearts become with gratitude. The fuller our hearts become with gratitude, the less room is left for feelings like anxiety. Listen, I'm not trying to offer you a simple pill that will forever fix feelings like anxiety. What I'm trying to point you towards is a path to take your anxiety to God. Rehearsing his blessings is a way to so fill your heart with the gospel of Jesus that anxiety is pushed out. So I want to encourage you to do something very, very simple this week, okay? I'm going to encourage you to read this wonderful sentence, verses 3 through 14, repeatedly. Read it over and over. But I want you to substitute the pronouns I, me, and mine for any plural pronouns you see so that you personalize this gospel truth. Because this will help you both see and feel the wonder of God's grace in Christ. I'm going to do it right now, then we'll pray. I encourage you to do this. Blessed is the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for he chose me and him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined me to be adopted as a son through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on me in the beloved one. In him I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on me with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to me the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him I also have received an inheritance because I was predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that I who have already put my hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him I also was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when I heard the word of truth, the gospel of my salvation, and when I believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of my inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Pray with me. Father, help us to see how real these things are. There are so many claims of truth that vie for our attention. And most of them are lies. We're, we're, we're hearing whispers about what blessings we need in order to be happy or content, and these blessings are always pointing us away from God. 
and to other things. Lord, help us not to believe these lies. We hear the voice of the tempter whispering in our ear and in our heart that we, that, that we really can't believe what we've talked about this morning. That God really isn't that gracious. That we really are so bad that these things can't be true. And so, Father, help us to believe this reality. That you are this good and you are this gracious and you are this kind. Lord, help us. Help our lives to be transformed because we hold tightly to the truth of what you have done for us in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.